0: Learn all about investing in real estate in High Point, North Carolina, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to High Point, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to High Point. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am James Orr, and this is a really cool class. This is sort of like part one of two of a class about down payments. So we kind of break it down into reducing the need for down payments, and then also how to produce down payments. So part one is reduce, part two is produce, so reduce and produce. So today is reduce the need for down payments when buying rental property. So let's jump right in. So before I even get started in this, uh, I wanna mention it's not just down payments. Really what we're talking about is the total cost to close plus reserves. And I'll even throw in another one. For, for some real estate markets, it's not just total cost to close, which consists of down payment plus closing costs, you know, plus all the fees and stuff like that you need to do in order to get your loan, um, plus reserves. But in addition to that, In some markets where you have negative cash flow, we're also talking about the people that choose to be a little bit more conservative in their real estate investing. They may want to set aside how much negative cash flow they're likely to have over the duration of owning this particular rental property. And you're like, how can you figure out how much negative cash flow you have while you own a rental property? Well, We can make some basic assumptions, like when we do our deal analysis spreadsheet using the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet, we can go look at how much cumulative negative cash flow there will be on that particular rental property by saying, you know, as an example, you know, there's negative $200 a month for the first year, then rents go up by $50 a month in year two. So now there's only $150 a month for year two. And then at the end of year two, rents go up another $50. So at the end of year, at the start of year three, it's only negative $100. And then at the end of year four, it goes up $50 again. So you have only $50 negative. And we could add up, you know, 200 times 12, $2,400 for year one, $150 for year two, which is $1,800 for that. Plus year three, we've got about $1,200 plus year four, we've got about $600. And then we could sum up all of those and say, look, if we really wanna be super conservative with our money that we are putting aside to make sure that this property is a good property for us and helps us get to financial independence, we're talking about making sure we have enough down payment saved, how much we need for the uh, total cost to close, including down payments and closing costs and all that other stuff, plus any reserves, whether you're doing six months of reserves and some type of really liquid, super safe savings account, or 12 months of reserves and something a little bit more aggressive like stock market or something like that. Plus now we're talking about, in addition to that, this idea of setting aside all of your negative cash flow so that you really are covered. And this is a good investment for you, even if you need to set all that money aside. And then we can take all of this as our denominator when we do deal analysis and use it to find out what our overall return on investment is, including the investment of down payments, closing costs, reserves, and any negative cash flow, the cumulative negative cash flow. So that's where we're headed, but that was a tangent. So today I'm really focused on uh, how to reduce the need for down payment. And really, I just wanted to mention, it's not just down payment. It's this total cost of close plus reserves. Plus, really, we're talking about some of this cumulative negative cash flow that we might set aside. So that's where we are. All right. So I talked about this. We're talking about strategies to reduce the down payment needed. There are strategies to produce the down payment needed, which we will cover in another class. I believe it's scheduled for Wednesday. Um, an important note, you still need to have, and this is really important, you still need to have good credit, good income, and low or no other debt to support loans with just a few exceptions. Okay, so some of the exceptions are like the creative financing where you are negotiating directly with a private party, usually the seller, and you're trying to figure out what the terms of you being able to buy this property are. And in those cases, that particular seller may or may not, it's, it's a negotiation between the two, may or may not require good credit. They may or may not require you to have any income at all. And they may or may not require you to have low or no other debt to support the loan that you're getting from them. In most other cases, if you're gonna to go to a traditional financing source, like a bank or a lender, mortgage broker, something like that, um, they're gonna check your credit and they're gonna want you to have a certain credit score you know, probably above 620. They're going to want you to have good income, enough income to support this new debt. And they're going to want you to have low or no other debt. I mean, you could have some debt, but they're going to want to make sure that your debt to income, their calculation that they do, and we're going to do an entire series of classes on that. In the meantime, you can go access the uh, the debt to income class that we have in the, the kind of control panel, the, the uh, coaching um, program kind of interface there. But they're going to want to make sure that you have good credit, good income and low or no other debt using the debt to income calculation in order to see if you qualify for this loan. So we're going to talk about down payment. And I think a lot of folks think, you know, I'm being, I'm being limited by my ability to produce this down payment, but it may also be good credit, good income, low or no other, no low or no other debt as part of this limitation as to what you can do. So you really need to focus in on all of those things. It's not just one thing you're solving. We you really need to think about all those. Okay. This is kind of interesting. This this point here is super interesting. You know, any simpleton, any fool can find a reason why it won't work for you. I'm going to give you some ideas on how to reduce the need for down payment. And another class, we're going to talk about all the different strategies for how to produce a down payment. And there is a tendency. There is a there is an easy path for people that don't want to put in hard work, that don't want to put in effort, for them to say oh, James came up with this idea, or James is sharing this idea that it's worked for other people, but that doesn't apply to me. It's not really my thing. I don't need to worry about that because this, this particular concept doesn't apply to me at all. It's, it's not relevant. And I'm telling you that's a mistake. Any fool can think of a reason why it doesn't work or it doesn't apply to you. Really, it's a sign of your intelligence, your resourcefulness, your kind of resolve, your grit, your tenacity to get things done, to figure out the ways that this does apply, to take these general ideas that I'm sharing with you and apply them to your specific situation. And I I can't really do that for you. And if you want to, you know, share ideas on the on the coaching sessions, we could do that. We could talk about how this applies to you and, and help you implement that. But really, you have to think about this for yourself. You can't just say, oh. That's a very specific situation. No, you need to take the idea and say, how can this apply to what I've got going on to my particular life? So just keep that in mind that will it work for me is really not a question of does the direct exact example that James used apply to me. But really, does this generalized concept, how can I make it apply to me? And maybe it's not a direct application. Maybe it's sort of like a partial application. Where, well, I, maybe I can't get that full benefit, but I can get this little benefit and make that work for me. Okay. So that's where we're going there. All right. So let's jump right into the reduced things. Really easy one. And this is especially helpful for nomads, people that are buying the home, moving buying the home as an owner-occupant with usually little down or nothing down, um, with better interest rates because it's an owner-occupant loan. They're moving into the property. They're living in the property for at least a year. It's a requirement of the lender that if you get these owner-occupant loans with lower nothing down and really good interest rates, that you live in the property, you're gonna sign a piece of paper that says you agree to live in the property for a year. And if you don't, if you don't kind of hold up your end of the, the agreement there, that's called loan fraud. And you can go to prison for it. So it's not something to mess with. So you go and you buy the property as an owner occupant, little or nothing down, with really good interest rates. You move into the property. You live there for at least a year. It's a requirement with the lender. And then once you've lived there for a year, once you've saved up your next down payment, you qualify to get the next loan, you buy your next property, you convert the previous one to a rental, and you repeat the process as many times as you want. So that's what nomading is. Or buy-and-hold type real estate investors. So this is really good for that. So the hint is, how do you reduce the need for larger down payments? Well, you minimize the price of property that you're buying. And I know this seems obvious, right? I'm just naming some of the obvious ones. Some of them are less obvious, but this one is really obvious. If you want to reduce the need for a down payment, you minimize the price that minimizes the down payment. So how do you do that? You search for properties by lowest price. You find the property that makes sense for you, has the best characteristics for buying a rental property, really good price to rent ratio, really good long-term um, kind of property, low capital expenses on the horizon, and even if you did have them, they're reasonable cost type ones. Ones that would see really good, uh, significant appreciation over time. Ones that you're going to have low vacancy in. They're not, um, you know, they're they're not kind of wacky properties that are function functionally obsolete. You know, things like that that you want to look for. But you want to also find ones where if you can get the same economics, but buy it in a slightly less expensive property, and you're concerned about down payment, then maybe you should focus on that. So search for properties by lowest price. Now, here's a little carve out, a little caveat for these, and something that a lot of people don't think about. Oftentimes, when you're searching for properties by lowest price, these properties tend to have deferred maintenance. If you think about it mathematically, imagine making a list of properties from the lowest price to the highest price. And you're searching down the list going one by one by one. You're like, okay, this is just too inexpensive. It's in a bad part of town. I'm not really interested in buying that property. You know, it needs a lot of work. It's only one bedroom. It's kind of in a wacky area. You know, you like, you kind of eliminate some of the really, really, really inexpensive ones typically. And then you get to the one where it's like, oh, this is like the properties that I normally buy, but it's the lowest, it's the highest on the low price list, right? So it's one of the, the less, least expensive properties you have, because um, it shows up toward the top of that list, but it's one that you would normally buy. Well, why is it showing up on this kind of least expensive list The kind of like really high up on the list? A lot of times the reason why the ones you come across first are the ones that have some type of deferred maintenance. Sure. They're a really nice three bedroom, two bath property in a super nice part of town that would otherwise be a pretty property, but it's in really rough shape and it needs like a lot of stuff. It needs a new roof. It needs a new furnace, it needs a new AC, it needs new flooring, Kitchen's kind of outdated, you know, like all of these things might be going for it. And so that's why it's showing up high in the list. And the temptation for you is, yeah, I can get into this property with 3% down, 3.5% down, 5% down, you know, if you're going to move into it as a no matter house hacker or, you know, 15% down if you're willing to do PMI on an investor loan or 20% down an investor loan. And because it's a less expensive property, that's a smaller amount of money. You may be thinking, this is really attractive to me, but be careful because Sometimes what you're trading is you're trading the need for a lower down payment for maintenance and fix up work and capital improvements as soon as you acquire it. So you're trading one problem for another. You may come in really, really light with the amount you need for down payment, but then you're coming in with the need for 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, 50,000, 75,000, $100,000 in all of these improvements and updates that you need to make on this property. And you cannot finance that or it's harder to finance that because there are some loans where you can finance the fix-up cost, but it's much trickier to do, okay? So be careful about this trade-off that you're making where you say, I want to buy this really inexpensive property, and I'm not afraid of doing some work in order to buy a property like that, having some deferred maintenance. Well, you're trading the need for your down payment in order to do a property that does not need work. And I think I use this in an example when we talked about how to improve cash flow while searching for properties, and I showed you what the difference was between buying a property where you needed ten thousand dollars worth of work and taking that same ten thousand dollars that you could have used for work, and instead improving on the interest rate that you could get and how much more cash flow that actually improves than taking the same ten thousand dollars and buying a discounted property where it was more than a ten thousand dollar discount, but it needed ten k in work. So go watch that class because we talked about how much better it was in terms of cash flow. By doing it that way. Okay. Um, And a lot of the times when you're buying these properties that need a lot of work, a lot of capital expense type work, I wouldn't necessarily recommend holding these long term because of all the capital expenses you've got. In some cases, not all, but in some cases, it makes sense for you to buy a pretty property where it's been really well maintained that you don't have a lot of like kind of like pent up CapEx type demands. Capital expenses are things you you pay money to approve of property over time that you know are coming down the, the road, like a roof or something like that. So you have these expenses that you know are coming on a property. If you bought a pretty property, maybe you would have less of those than if you bought a property that was lived in hard and not maintained and had a lot of deferred capital expenses and a lot of deferred maintenance on the property when you're doing that. Now that I've said all that, If you are using a strategy like buying the property and then offering it to a tenant buyer on a lease option or lease purchase, they're going to lease the property from you with the intention of buying it from you in a year or two or three, or they're going to lease the property and they're going to use a purchase contract from you in a year or two or three, and you're actually going to sell the property before you have all of these capital expenses come due, then I hesitantly and reluctantly approve of that particular strategy for the situations where you have a lot of deferred maintenance coming down the pipeline. But you could just as easily get get caught in that, right? Like you could say, hey, my roof is going to be due in eight years. And so as long as I get into this property and I use a lease option with a tenant buyer on the way out, a tenant buyer is a tenant who's going to buy the property from you, tenant buyer on a lease option or rent to own is another way of saying that. But if they're going to come in there, they're going to buy it from me and." one, two, three years, four years. But what happens if you get someone in there And it takes them three years for them to say, I'm going to buy it, I'm going to buy it, I'm going to buy it. And at the end of three years, all of a sudden they say, you know, we got divorced, we were going to buy this property, but we're no longer together. I don't need a house like this. It has bad memories or it's too big for me. I'm not going to buy it. And you say, no problem. I'll go find another tenant buyer and I'll put another tenant buyer in there. And they do the same thing. They're in there for three years. And next thing you know, you're up against your deadline of replacing this roof if they don't buy. And maybe the second group doesn't buy because you could have bad luck. You can have a tenant buyer go in there and they have every intention. They look like they're going to close tomorrow, but tomorrow turns into a year and the year turns into two years and the that turns into three years and then they're divorced or no longer wanting it. Their kids move out. They have more kids. They need a bigger house. They need a smaller house. They get transferred for their job. All these things happen that are sort of outside your control. They end up not buying. And the same thing happens on the second set, which is just you know just the way things work. It's not bad luck necessarily. It's just... You had a group that you thought was going to buy, they didn't. You had a second group you thought they were going to buy, they didn't. Next thing you know, you're at your eight year points and you've got to actually fix a roof on that property. And you were not expecting that. You were not expecting a $10,000, $15,000 roof on a property. Okay, so just be aware of that. It might be easier to find tenant buyers with 5% down in that second quartile property anyway. So if you're thinking about, hey, look, I really want to buy these super inexpensive properties in order to save on down payment, it may actually be easier for you to find people more in the meat of the market, in the middle of the market. If you think of the market sort of as a bell curve. There's these really inexpensive properties and there's very few of those, but as you get more toward the median, the number kind of increases until you get to this middle point, the median point of prices on there. And this is the the number of those that exist. There's a lot more in the meat of the market. And then it kind of starts tapering off where you have fewer and fewer and fewer really expensive properties. And so you get to the point where it's really low down here for the most expensive properties. You know, the $200 million properties in your marketplace, there's not a lot of those. And there's not a lot of those $10,000 properties in your marketplace either, right? And so you have this sort of curve where it comes up and the meat of the market's in this middle. It may be easier for you to find people in that kind of meat of the market where they need that median type house, you know, plus or minus a little bit, kind of maybe a little bit over the median or a little bit under the median, but sort of in that, what I like to refer to as the second quartile is kind of the ideal spot. And I'll show you that here in a second. When we go over Gary Keller's millionaire real estate investor book, On the next slide, I'll show you kind of like why you may want to be in this little area here. But maybe you find more tenant buyers there who have that 5% option fee to be able to give you when they move into the property as a tenant buyer with a lease option or lease purchase or whatever you structured as. That way you have enough down payment to go buy your next property. So maybe you're buying the property, you're moving in, you're putting 3% down, 3.5% down, 5% down. You're living there for a year and then you're offering it to a tenant buyer or on a lease option or lease purchase. And if the tenant buyer who's moving into the property you're about to move out of gives you 5% down on that one, well, now you have 5% that if you're buying a similar price property to what they just gave you 5% down on, you have the down payment you need in order to buy the next one completely. So that could be a strategy for you to actually produce the down payment, which we'll talk about in the next class, okay? All right. So let's talk about this graphic from Gary Keller's Millionaire Real Estate Investor book, uh, which is a, a phenomenal book if you haven't read it. It's uh, usually called The Blue Book. If you look behind me, you can probably see it on my bookshelf, although I think it's where my head is. Yeah, it's on, the, it's on that middle shelf right behind where my head is. So if I tilt my head, I get really active. You can kind of see it on there. But yeah, so this is totally worth reading. A Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. A um, super fascinating book for real estate investing. And in that book, he has this image. And I'll just kind of walk you through what this image is telling you. But it's basically e- expressing... Where are the best deals? If you think about it in terms of low-end prices or high-end prices, like where are the best deals in a marketplace? And so he breaks it down into four different characteristics or four different um, kind of like ways to think about properties. He talks about cash flow you know, how much the properties typically cash flow. how much hassle is involved. You know, certain properties, they require more work or less work, less hassle. Uh, Appreciation, the tendency for property values to go up over time. Which ones are you likely to see the best appreciation for? And then liquidity. What if you need to get into a property or what if you need to get out of a property? How liquid is it for doing that? And then he has down here, low-end properties, high-end properties, and average properties. So this is sort of price And then for each one of these characteristics, the cash flow, the hassle factor, the appreciation factor, the liquidity factor, this is where they have low, so like low cash flow or high cash flow uh, or hassle, low hassle or high hassle. And so it's low down here, medium or high. And so if you think about it, let's look at the cash flow line. It says dash line here. So on the low end properties, those tend to have the best cash flow. They tend to have the highest cash flow. And then as the price goes up, when you get about to the average properties, they tend to have in this sort of medium cash flow. And then over kind of as they get into the higher end properties, the cash flow dips off a little bit. So it gets to be, I don't know, I'd call this medium low. It's not all the way in the low end, but it's definitely not in the medium area anymore. And so you kind of have this cash flow curve sort of decline as prices go from low to high. So the low ones have the highest cash flow. The high end ones have this kind of like medium to low ish cash flow. Now, as far as hassle goes, the low end properties have like a medium plus hassle factor. And then once you get down to the average price properties, it has what I would consider to be a low hassle factor, the lowest of all of them. And then as you get up into higher end properties, the hassle factor increases until it gets up to medium plus again. So as far as hassle goes, the best deals are sort of in that medium range, the lowest hassle that you've got there. Now, in terms of appreciation, the low end properties have like this. Low to medium, probably pretty more and a little bit more on the low side. And then as you get up into this average properties, they kind of peak out with a kind of medium plus, kind of medium to high uh, appreciation. And then as you get to more expensive properties, they drop back down to a full right in the middle of medium. So, or medium. So basically, you have this appreciation where on the low end, they tend not to appreciate as much. In the average, they tend to appreciate the most. And on the high end, they sort of like appreciate, but they don't appreciate quite as much as the average goes. And then finally, liquidity. Uh, liquidity on the low end of properties, like the, the least expensive properties, has really low liquidity. It's hard to get in and out of those. When you get to the average properties, those are the ones that sell and are bought the most. And so that is the highest Liquidity. And then as you get into this really high-end, most expensive market, it goes back down to low. So if you look at kind of like where all of these curves, the cash flow, the hassle, the appreciation, liquidity, where are those where they're the best of all four of them? You can see that the great deals tend to be in this like not the very, very low end, but not quite average. So there's sort of like between the cheapest stuff. And the middlemost or average type properties, what I would refer to as the second quartile. Not the very, very low end, but not sort of above median or average, if you kind of think of it that way. So this sort of like spot where it's like not quite the cheapest stuff, but not there. So sort of like the second quartile. If you imagine you priced all the properties and you had them into four groups, you have the, the halfway point, kind of the median, and then the halfway of the bottom half, the kind of like cheapest properties. There, If you divided that in half again, it's the second quarter. The second part of all that there is where they are. And you have good deals sort of like right in the average. So somewhere between great deals, this is kind of like start of the second quartile, all the way through to the middle point of that is where the good deals are. So you can kind of get a feel of, Where you want to be, according to Gary Keller in his book, Millionaire Real Estate Investor, um, where these ideal deals are. And you may find in your marketplace they're slightly different than this, but I think overall you'll find this to be a really good thinking tool as to where you may want to invest. Probably not the cheapest end. And probably not the highest end. Although there are exceptions. There are real estate investors who are successful on the very, 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 very low end and successful real estate investors on the very, very, very high end. And people can go against the trend. But if you're looking for sort of like a well-worn path of somewhere that, you know, this is kind of like a proven strategy in many ways, this is what you want to be thinking about. All right. Let's talk about strong seller's markets. So we've kind of left to a large degree the strong sellers market. I'm recording this in March of uh, 2023, and we've had these significantly boosted interest rates. Interest rates were at or near all-time lows for many years, And uh, we saw that these interest rates were at like these crazy, crazy lows. Inventory was very low. A lot of people were wanting to buy. Demand was really, really high. We were in this ridiculously strong seller's market where sellers were in control. They were sort of like setting the terms. A lot of buyers were coming in. They were making multiple. They were making higher than asking price offers. You had multiple buyers making offers. You had multiple offers on these properties. That was what was happening a year ago. That's sort of like the, the end of it. It was about a year ago now where interest rates started to go up. Since then, interest rates have gone up significantly, where they were at for owner-occupant probably in the high twos, mid-high twos, and now they're in the high sixes to probably seven. So if you think about that, we had this really significant increase in interest rates. We're probably, in most markets, not in as strong of a seller's market as we was back then, but now we're sort of out of it. But what happens? Markets go in cycles. This could happen again. We could go back into a strong seller's market a year, two, five, 10, 15, 20, 50 years from now. And so I want to cover this in case you happen to find yourself in a strong seller's market. Most of you are not going to be in this, okay? So I'll cover it relatively quickly, but we dealt with this for five years. You know, this really strong seller's market for a while. So this is kind of just coming out of it. These are sort of the tips. So the strong seller's market, the lower price point in some markets are extremely challenging to buy in. When the market was really, really hot, there were multiple offers on properties. Uh, people were bidding things up way above asking price. They were waiving things like appraisal, saying, I don't care what the appraises is for. I will make up the difference if it doesn't appraise. They were waiving inspection, saying, I'm not going to inspect the property. I'll buy it as is, whereas I don't need to even have an inspector go out there. I feel comfortable buying it as is. Uh, we saw multiple offers on properties. Buyers pay more than asking price. In a lot of cases, sometimes offering more than appraised value. There was really high demand. There was really low inventory. So this is what it was. Now, if you're having to be aggressive to get offers accepted, like having to waive or limit your appraisal conditions or waive or limit your inspection conditions, then it may be more than just the minimum down payment that you need. If that is the case in your marketplace where you're having to waive or limit your appraisal conditions or waive or limit your inspection conditions, then you might be talking about more than just my down payment plus my closing costs. Plus, my reserves, plus maybe some negative cash flow. If you're kind of thinking of it that way too. In addition to all that, it may also be you need to make up the difference between what you're offering on the property, which is higher than the appraisal, and what the property appraises for. So, let's say we'll use a $100,000 property as an example. We have a property worth $100,000. And because the market is so crazy hot and there are more buyers than there are properties for them, you have 20 buyers making offers on this one $100,000 property. And the property really is worth $100,000. That's what it's going to appraise for. But you're like, look, I really want this property. And so you say, I will offer you $101,000. And the next guy comes in and says, I'll offer you one hundred and five. dollars The next guy comes in, I'll say, I'll offer you one ten. dollars And you're like, well, I really want this. And I've been making offers on a bunch of properties that haven't got them. I'll offer you $111,000. So you end up in the point where you got the property under contract for $111,000. And the property appraises for $100,000. So now, in order for you to buy the property, and let's say you're able to get a five percent down, owner-occupant, nomad type loan, you're going to move into the property, you're going to live there for a year, and you're going to convert there. So you only need five percent down. So you would normally need five percent down of whatever you purchase, whatever you paid for the property. So if you could have bought it for what it appraised for, hundred thousand dollars, you would have needed to come up with five thousand dollars. Okay, 5%, five percent, five thousand dollars on a hundred thousand dollar property. But because you had to bid eleven thousand dollars above what the property is worth. Now the lender says, okay, you need to pay 5% of what the property appraised for, $100,000, so five grand, plus you need to make up the difference between what it appraised for, $100,000, and what you offered, one eleven. dollars So now you need to come to the table with not 5K plus closing costs and reserves. You don't need to come to the table with reserves, but you know your closing cost, your down payment and your closing costs. Now you need to come to the table with $5,000 plus your closing costs plus $11,000 to make up that difference. So you went from a need of $5,000 in down payment to a $16,000 down payment, $5,000 plus the $11,000 in order to buy the property, plus closing costs, plus you'll need reserves. Plus if you want to actually have set aside any negative cash flow, you would do that, okay? So you'd be making up the difference in appraisal and having to do work on the property once you move in if you also waived your inspection. So you bought the property as is because you're like, look, A lot of people are getting these properties and the really good ones, there's 25 people bidding. On the ones that need work, there's only seven people bidding. And so maybe you still need to pay above asking price, but you're also bidding on these properties that need work because you're not afraid to do the work. But then when you move in, not only do you need the $5,000 in down payment, plus whatever you had to pay above appraised value, in this case, we said $11,000, but maybe you also need $5,000 worth of work on the property just to get it to the point where it's good to go. So, realize that in these strong seller's markets, a lot of times it's more than just down payments and closing costs and reserves and a cumulative negative cash flow. Sometimes it's making up the difference in appraisal and any uh, repairs you need on the properties as well. It's counterintuitive to a lot of folks, but especially in these strong seller markets, it might be better, might be cheaper to move up price slightly, to reduce the competition you're competing against and dealing with appraisal gaps and doing work on that highly competitive, lower price properties. So uh, imagine for a minute, yeah, if you're buying in the $100,000 price range and some people are like 100,000, yeah, I can't, I can't get anything for $100,000 in my market. I'm using that as an example. Okay, so if you're in that $100,000 price point where there's a lot of demand because everybody wants that, there's a lot more people looking for those, You might be saying, "Hey, look, it might be better for me to go up to 150 or even 200 because at that price, there's a lot fewer competing, and I won't have to make up as big of an appraisal gap than I would at the hundred thousand. So it might be easier to do it that way." Okay, all right. Let's cover the last slide here before the conclusion is all about nothing down financing. So this is reducing your need to come up with down payment at all. How do we reduce the need for you to have for, for a down payment for you well you do a nothing down loan you could do a low down loan I mean we're not really covering those specifically but you know there's the three percent down and these change over time by the way these you know there's a three percent down conventional loan right now there's a three and a half percent down uh FHA loan right now and there's a five percent down um conventional loan right now you know and so those are available for those of you that are willing to move into a property you know house hackers or nomads primarily Um, And there is a 15% down non-owner occupant investor loan where you don't need to move into the property, but there's PMI on that. And usually the interest rate on it's pretty ugly. But let's talk about nothing down financing. Really, I kind of break this down into kind of like the five major sources and then all the creative deals, which we'll talk about very briefly here as well. So let's talk about nothing down financing options. Number one is hard money. Hard money are lenders who are in the business of loaning money to people on investment properties, not usually owner-occupant properties because the rules for owner-occupant loans are very different than the loans for commercial or um, kind of like investment property. So a lot of the hard money lenders are not willing... I say not willing because they don't want to deal with all the regulations and rules and, and stuff like that. And there may be an exception to somebody who does, but most of the hard money lenders are going to say, no, if you're moving into the property, we don't do loans like that. If you're buying as investment, you know, doing like a fix and flip or something like that, yeah, then we'll loan money on those. So hard money lenders are people in the business of loaning money. Usually they're higher priced, shorter term financing sources where you could buy properties. But a lot of times, if you find the right deal, they can be nothing down. Not all the time. There are some hard money lenders that they don't care, even if you're buying the property for half off. They really want to see you have some skin in the game and they'll want 10% down regardless. But there are some hard money lenders that are like, look, as long as you're buying below a certain threshold, a really common one is 70% of the after repaired value. So if you're getting a really big discount on a property, presumably because it needs a lot of work, or there's some really motivational aspects of what the seller situation is, where they really just want to get out and liquidity is more important than price to them. But if you're able to come in there with a hard money loan, you're able to buy the property, buy it for you know 70% of the after repaired value, some hard money lenders will go in there and loan you 100% of your purchase price because they feel protected that if for some reason you fail to do the fix up or don't do what you're supposed to do, they can foreclose, get the property back, and they feel comfortable being able to make their money with a big enough discount That's 70% of the after-repaired value. They can go in there and you know have their contractors finish a job or sell to another investor and get their money out of there doing that. So usually it's somewhere in that 70% range. Sometimes it's 65, sometimes it's 60. In some rare cases, it could be 75 or you know really, really rare cases you might find someone willing to go to 80. Most of the time though, it's gonna be in that 70% range. And it might be very hard for you to find someone willing to go higher than that. Again, it's not non-owner occupant loans. You usually can't buy these properties to move into. They tend to be shorter term loans. Really, really common to see six months. You know, sometimes they'll be shorter than that, three months. They want you in now, or uh, there's even do for a day programs where they're loaning you money just for a day for you to buy the property, and then sometimes wholesale to someone else. Or um, you know, they'll have like a nine month term, or uh, you know, a six month term with the ability to extend for some extra fees doing that. Um, they tend to be higher interest rates, and they tend to have upfront fees, which we call points. So someone they say a hard money loan is, you know, it's uh, 18% and four points, which means you're paying four percentage points, 4% of the amount you're getting on the loan as an initial fee in order to get the loan, which is expensive. Uh, plus 18% per year. So if you're doing a six month loan, you're going to pay 9% of the loan amount, Uh, over that six month period to do that. So, and a lot of times with the point, not everyone, but some of the hard money lenders, they will allow you to add your points to the loan. So just use really simple math. You think about this. You want to go borrow $100,000 to buy a property using hard money financing. So they'll say to you, okay, we're going to loan you the $100,000, but there are four points. So you owe them $4,000. What they may be willing to do is they'll say, instead of you owing us a hundred, now you owe us 104 and now you're paying 18% interest, as an example, on 104 instead of paying 18% interest on the 100. That way, you don't need to come up with the $4,000, but you're actually paying interest on the $4,000. So they tend to make a little bit of money on that by doing it that way. So some of them will structure it that way. Some of them will not. Some will say you need to pay the points up front separately, in which case it's not really nothing down. But a lot of the times, you could structure these as a nothing down loan. So that's sort of hard money. Oh, and these are really popular for people wanting to do the Burr strategy, the buy rehab, rent, refi, and then an optional last R is the repeat process. So you can kind of repeat this if you're doing it. So that's all hard money. And the hard money lenders are in the business of loaning money and they have their own preset terms. You can try to negotiate them, but if you're coming in as sort of like a first-time client and you've only done one deal, your your ability to negotiate is probably severely limited. If you're doing three of these a month and you've doing a lot of business with them, your ability to negotiate goes up a lot, and then you can negotiate terms. Okay, so that's all hard money. The next step up from that, not that they're categorized or kind of hierarchically organized, but sort of like the next step up, in in my opinion, for like thinking about this is private money. Private money is not hard money. So a private lender is not someone who is in the business of loaning you money, someone who's in the business, I call them hard money lenders, someone who is an individual who is not usually in the business of loaning money, but you get them through your normal interaction. Um, the, the example I'd love to use is you're at Thanksgiving dinner with grandma, and you're telling grandma about how you're doing this new thing with real estate investing, and you're buying these properties, and that you're using this lender who's charging you 18% and four points. And grandma's like, I've got Five hundred thousand dollars in CDs, and they're only paying me two percent. Why don't I loan you the money at four percent? And you know, you save a lot of money on your interest with the hard money guys, and I actually get more money for my CDs. You know, than, than my CDs are paying me. And you say, Grandma, that sounds like a really good deal. It sounds like a win for you and a win for me. And now, Grandma, who's not in the business of usually lending money, she becomes your private money lender. Okay, and the terms of what you negotiate with Grandma are not preset. They're wide open. If grandma says to you, Look, I love you. I don't need any interest. I just want to be helpful. How about 0%? And you're like, Yeah, that sounds great, grandma. Thank you very much. And she's like, No problem. You're going to get it anyway. I'd rather see you use it now. That makes a lot of sense to me. Or grandma's very shrewd and she says, How about 10%. And you're like, How about eight? And she's like, How about nine? And you guys come together and you're like, 9% sounds reasonable. You negotiate these terms. And grandma says, hey, look, I want 10% down because I want to feel protected. And you're like, I don't want to give you 10% down. I want nothing down. And so you negotiate. All these terms are negotiated for these. They vary since it's a private party, and it's usually friends and family, and you got to talk about that. Again, these are really helpful for Burr, but there's no set characteristics. It's not like they say 70% loan to value, not owner occupant shorter term, it's got to be six months, grandma may do five years, grandma maybe do, you know, three months, you know, who knows what grandma wants. Uh, And it could be a higher interest rate, could be a lower interest rate, it really all depends. So that's kind of private money. The next one is USDA, the US Department of Agriculture has a special loan program for helping people buy properties in rural areas, you're not going to be able to buy this in your major cities. But like if you are willing to drive 30 minutes into work, and a lot of times within the 30 minute drive, maybe a little bit longer in some cities than others, You can find these rural areas where the population is a little bit smaller. It's sort of like all the little towns on the outskirts of these big towns. Um, You can find those. And you can find out exactly if they qualify by going to the USDA website. They have an eligibility map where you can type in addresses and it tells you if it's in a USDA eligible zone. But it has to be a rural property as defined by the USDA in these eligibility areas and you have to owner-occupy the property, and that is a nothing-down loan. You can buy a property with 0% down if you're willing to live in these rural areas, and there's some income qualification. You can't make too much, and you can't make too little, not be able to qualify. So it's a sweet spot of, you can't make too little where you can't qualify for the loan, but you can't make too much where you make too much money in order to buy the property. So it's sort of like you're constrained as your income as well. But it is a nothing-down loan program for buying rural properties, okay? And that is an owner occupant loan. Then the VA loan, is another loan. That's a Veterans Administration loan. And this is for veterans. If you served in the military, a lot of times you'll have eligibility to do this. There are some exceptions where you can get eligibility uh, where you did not directly serve in the military, but go call your lender and find out what the requirements are. Or I do have a whole class on VA loans. It's like a two-hour class on that. Um, you can probably access that too. But you must have VA benefits and you must owner-occupy, live in the property in order to qualify for the VA loan. And that is also nothing down. An interesting thing about the VA loan is that it can also be used to buy multifamily properties. So you could buy a single family home with you know, a USDA loan or a VA loan, but a VA loan, you could also buy a duplex where you live in one of the two units, a triplex where you live in one of the three units, or a fourplex where you live in one of the four units. If it's more than four units, you change your financing completely, and a VA loan will not work for you buying a five unit or above Type of property those are commercial loans and the changes the financing for those changes considerably okay so we talked about hard money talked about private money talked about the usda for rural properties another nothing down loan program we talked about the va loan for people that have veteran benefits va eligibility and that's a nothing down loan which you could also use for single family homes duplexes triplexes, and fourplexes and then finally in some markets not all markets but in some markets your local banks may have their own custom nothing down loan programs and so you may want to just check with those to find out if there's anything special going on with your local banks and then buying that. Okay. So those are sort of like the nothing now financing. Plus, in addition to all of these, there are all the creative deal type uh, creative deal financing type structuring, like buying a property subject to the existing mortgage where the seller agrees to deed you ownership of the property. The deed signifies ownership. So by deeding you ownership of the property there, they're saying that you are now the owner of the property by signing a deed saying you own it. And they're leaving their existing loan in place, which imagine they owe very close to the full value of the property. And they're just like, look, I can't make the mortgage payments anymore. Um, How about you make the mortgage payments? I'll deed you ownership of the property and you make payments on this underlying loan. That may be beneficial to them if, if otherwise they would be foreclosed on. And it might be beneficial to you. You're able to acquire a property, maybe even with very low interest rates compared to what the interest rates are today. And then you start making payments on that existing loan. That's called subject to. Wrapping is where the seller has an existing loan on the property and they are wrapping the loan such that you make payments to them. And if you don't pay, they can foreclose and get the property back if you're doing it that way. So wrap financing is sort of like a variation on subject to. It's not exactly, but it's a way to think about it. Um, and then owner financing, when the seller owns the property free and clear, they don't have, they do not have a mortgage on it. They can say to you, "Hey, how about I act as the bank? I will sell you the property, and I'll pretend that I am the lender on the property. You pay me a amount plus interest on the property as if I was acting as the lender too." And so that's owner financing. And so all the terms for owner financing are negotiated directly with sellers. Sort of like that private money one where you're dealing with a private party and all the terms are up for negotiation. How much down, um, you know, your credit score requirements, your debt to income requirements, um, how much you're able to borrow. Um, like all of the terms are completely negotiable when we talk about that owner financing. Or in some cases, you have a seller who is saying, hey, look, I'm willing to lease you the property and I'll give you the right to buy it from me. We talked about this before where we offered that to a tenant buyer uh, a lease option or a lease purchase, kind of like our general general way of describing this is rent to own. Uh, but sometimes you may want to acquire a property on a rent to own because sometimes it's very low down. Now a lot of these strategies, subject to wrap financing, owner financing, lease option, uh, loan assumption to a lesser degree, and uh, you know, all inclusive deeds of trust, you know a contract for deed, like all of those creative financing stuff, a lot of times they may be nothing down. But in most cases, you're going to need to pay some money in marketing in order to find these types of deals. Sure, there are some ways to be able to find properties like this, creative financing, where they cost you nothing but time. You know, making calls from people that are advertising properties for sale by owner or, um, you know, knocking on doors or something like that, where you're just doing manual labor to do it. But in a lot of cases, you're going to be doing direct mail or ads on, you know, places like Google or something like that in order to find sellers that have a situation where your creative solution may be good for them. It may be a good fit for them. Okay. So those are all possibilities for reducing the need for down payment. Creative deals, they're flexible. I mean, they could be you need that payment or they could be you don't need that payment. Um, But those are sort of like the list of nothing down financing, hard money, private money, USDA, VA, local banks, and all the creative stuff subject to wrap financing, owner financing, lease option. Um, You kind of get the idea, all of those in there. So in conclusion, it's not just about down payment, but really we've been talking about the total cost to close, your down payment plus your closing costs, plus anything else you need there. And reserves, because it would be imprudent. I'm going to use stronger language here, okay? It would be stupid for you to invest in real estate without reserves, okay? Strong language. So, total cost to close, down payment, closing cost, plus reserves, and if you're in a market where you have some negative cash flow, maybe setting aside all or some of your expected negative cash flow to be prudent, to be prepared for something that you know is coming now if it doesn't happen that way if rents go up a lot more than you thought or you know you have a lease option tenant buyer coming and give you a much larger option fee or something like that that offsets some of that negative cash flow maybe you don't need to worry about it but it would be a good idea for you to start thinking about some of the negative cash flow and setting some of that aside okay so it's not just about down payment and in conclusion any fool can say that this doesn't apply to them but you should think about As an intelligent person who is resilient, who has resolve, who has grit, who wants to make this a success and wants to apply this to themselves, you should figure out how it does apply to you. How can you change what I said so that it is applicable to your specific situation? And for down payments, today we really focused on reducing the need for down payments. In the next class, which I believe is going to be on Wednesday, there's a class between these two, but I, I believe the one on Wednesday, we were talking about how to produce down payments. So I've got a whole separate list of like, I don't know, eight or nine things for how you generate down payments in order to be able to acquire properties. So now we talk about reducing the need for down payments as, as much as we can. Now we're talking about how to produce them and then utilizing the strategy or strategies that make sense for you and your goals. Sometimes you like say, I don't want to do this because my goal is to do it this way and This is how it's going to get me to financial independence faster, so I probably shouldn't do that, even though it would reduce my need for down payment. might be better for you to save up down payment and wait a little while, because that actually is a more direct route to your particular goal. That's another way for me to say that. Okay? So that's all I got for you. This has been James Orr. I will talk to you all soon. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates.